Welcome to From Zero to Millions, Accounting Edition. I am Bilal Mihana. And I'm Kelly Roars. We're here to share our wealth of knowledge on running a public accounting firm. Whether you're a seasoned CPA, an aspiring accountant, or a business owner seeking financial guidance, join us for valuable insights and practical advice. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of From Zero to Millions, Accounting Edition. This week, we have Stephen Jarvis, CPA, welcome owner of Retirement Tax Services. We're so happy to have you. Bilal and I are here to pick your brain and ask you some questions about how you went out on your own, your unique practice and how you run things. I think it's a little bit outside of the norm from your old accounting practice and some of the awesome things that you've got going on. So, you know, if we just dive right into it, if you can give us a little bit about your background and how did you get here? He ran. He ran through. Yeah, I jumped over a bunch of obstacles, climbed through a bunch of mud. Yeah, I'll try to keep it as condensed as I can. Everybody likes telling their backstory. I did not really want a job when I graduated from high school. I was really lacking in ambition and all sorts of things like that. I took a break from anything academic related for a couple of years. And then started going to community college because I thought you were supposed to. And this was in, you know, 2007, going into 2008. And uh, I took an accounting class because I had to, and it seemed easier for me than the people around me. And then 2008 starts happening, and it it just felt like no one was ever going to get a job again. And so as I started learning about careers in accounting, I thought, hey, this seems easier for me, and there's lots of jobs. Let's do this. So Out of the gate, it was 100% a practical decision. I know that doesn't sound as exciting as other people's stories, but I'm just being honest. I got my degree in accounting, and I'm sure like most people getting their degree in accounting was told over and over again, I need to go work at a big firm, you know, probably the big four if I want to consider myself successful in any way. And that never really resonated with me. So when I graduated, I worked at a local firm in Denver. I had great experience there, but it was growing rapidly. And so I've done my time doing 90 plus hour weeks and definitely did not enjoy that. But there's my badge of honor for that. I also realized right out of the gate that I was not a stereotypical accountant. I was interested in sales and business development right out of the gate. I wasn't as excited about the technical things. I liked all the business stuff. It just took me a long time to figure out what the alternative might be. So Worked at that small firm for two busy seasons and then worked at a really small firm for, I don't know, eight weeks. It just wasn't a good fit at all. And then somewhat followed the advice of all my accounting professors and worked at BDO for seven and a half years, which is big four adjacent. And I'm sure could tell stories similar to everyone else's of working in big accounting firms. From there, I decided I didn't want to be in the SEC world anymore is really what it came down to. And so I moved to Clifton Larson Allen, which is still a top 10 firm. And actually had my meeting scheduled with the chairman of the board of directors to check the last boxes on becoming a partner there. And I quit, which was not what I was expecting. It was not what they were expecting. But about a month before that meeting, a couple of financial advisors came to me and basically said, hey, we can't find CPAs that will play nice with us. We'd like to create a resource for that. And it was the first time in my life I'd really considered entrepreneurship. I'd grown up around a small business. I didn't think that's what I wanted to do. But when the opportunity came up, I got really excited and really got to a point where I was going to regret not attempting. 
And so I left my very stable job with a big accounting firm on a path that all of us set out thinking that that's exactly what we want and started my own firm. And now I'm two and a half years into that. You were very close to being a partner, which is in a way being a business owner, right? At a big firm. And you had to start from scratch at a new firm, which is your own. You had a family then, married, kids. So that jump, anxiety, of no money coming in at all in the first few months. How's that going through in your mind? Yeah, it was definitely terrifying at times. To be totally honest, it's still terrifying every now and then. It's gotten better. There are a lot of kind of like harsh realities for me because I'd already been in the industry for 10 plus years. I'd worked with a lot of business owners. And so in my head, I knew what it meant to be a business owner and I'd worked around all these people and I totally got it. But there is a big difference between being an employee and being a business owner. There is a big difference. And those things really started standing out to me. Just realizing the sheer volume of decisions you have to make as the owner of a company. When I was at a big firm, there were whole departments for everything. It's like, where's your laptop going to come from? I don't know. Call IT. Even signing up for a business credit card. It was like, oh, yeah, I guess I do need to do that. And yeah, they are going to want to know my personal information to approve me for that. Probably one of the scariest moments was the first time I hired someone. Because in my head, I'm committing to this person that not only am I going to give them their first paycheck, but that I'm going to keep growing this business in a way that I can give them all their paychecks after that. And thankfully, it's not like we're on the brink of collapse or anything like that. But as a business owner, looking at your projection, whatever you think they might be, there's always that chance of, well, hey, what if this stops working? And so there's that head trash there. So now we're up to four full-time employees and several contract employees, and that, that's gone really well. But I think that was one of the scarier moments for me of bringing someone else into this. Of course, I run payroll every two weeks. That's crazy. It's a first year for sure. It's like there's those ups and downs. But you picked a unique industry. You picked the financial advisors as your niche, right? I know your brother is in the industry already because I met him at the seminar in Vegas. What was intriguing about the industry? Why you made that jump and why you're focusing on that specifically? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that go into that. When I said I grew up around a small business, my dad got into financial planning when I was a kid and he had his own business. And so I was exposed to the industry early on. I wasn't particularly interested in becoming a financial advisor. I think really because I didn't understand what that would mean. And I wanted to do something different than my brother and my dad. And so I obviously kept in touch with my family. Over the years, I actually have six siblings, but Matthew, my brother, it's a financial advisor. He and I would do adventures every year, rock climbing, things like that. And we inevitably talked about business and the work we were doing. And so I knew not only what was going on with his financial planning practice, but several years ago now, five or six years ago, he had started into coaching other advisors. And so he was very well known in the industry, was doing a lot along with his business partner, Mike Schlansky. And honestly, when they first came to me and said, hey, we've got this idea, I immediately wrote it off and said, no, I'm not going to leave this big firm I work at where I'm about to become a partner to kind of do this side thing with you. Because the way they presented it to me was literally, hey, we can't find CPAs who will play nice with financial advisors. And my response was that it has to exist, like just go find it somewhere else. And they said, well, if you can find it, we'll leave you alone. And so as I started looking into it, what I was discovering was that by and large, both in the CPA industry and in the financial advising industry, there's just this disconnect between the two. Each has kind of their perception of what the other one is doing. And while these should be two skill sets that work very well together because they're very complementary, it just doesn't happen in reality. And so I saw this huge opportunity to have more control and influence over my future, as well as more directly help more people. 
So it's not that I do taxes for the advisors. My team does tax preparation, and tax planning for shared clients. So we're helping individuals and families. And also I spend a lot of time creating content, creating resources for advisors to help them do more with tax planning, because that's just one piece of what they've got to try to do for their clients. And so there isn't always great information for them to learn how they can serve their clients around taxes. So this is really interesting. And I feel like I have so much to talk about or ask you about or comment on here. So I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet. First, of all, I think there's a huge opportunity for accountants to work closely with financial advisors because holistic financial advisors are always looking to make sure that their clients are working with the best professionals and the really good ones out there want to work as a team with an accountant, with an attorney to make sure that their clients are in the best hands possible, making the best decisions in the long run. And as we know, there are not a lot of accountants who have a lot of time to be developing these relationships or, you know, servicing a hundred clients for a financial advisor. So in my experience, I deal with a lot of financial advisors as well. It is not my main relationship or source of clients, but in dealing with some of them, I've had conversations. People have reached out. Listen, I have 300 clients and they all need a tax return done at a minimum. And maybe they don't need planning from us or maybe they do. They just aren't really educated on what we do. But I know I don't have the capacity to service 31040s. And when I went out on my own, I said, I'm not going to be a volume practice. I don't want to have a thousand ten forty. So somehow you've been able to really fill this gap for a lot of advisors. Like how many advisors are you working with? And are you continuing to bring on new relationships with other advisors? What does that look like? And do you have any feedback for other accountants that may be able to do what you're doing? Because as we know, this is a podcast for other accountants and to inspire and let people know we're not your competition. There's plenty of business out there for everybody. That's my little tidbit. Yeah, there's definitely plenty of demand for this. If somebody wants to rip off my model and go do the same thing, please. And let me know. I'd love to hear how it goes for you and we can learn from each other because there's a ton of need for it. My business really has two separate revenue streams because we have some membership and other resources for the advisors themselves. So we are generating revenue from the content resources we create for financial advisors. So on that side, we're working with hundreds of advisors. And between the podcasts that I run, our website, Bilal, you mentioned the summit that we did, I reach thousands of advisors in a year. And again, I've only been doing this for about two and a half years. So that's growing rapidly. As far as advisors we work with that we're actually doing hands-on tax work, we're at about 30 advisors that have clients with us. And we are being very intentional about how we grow that because to your point, it can quickly feel like it's going to turn into a volume game where we're all just trying to grind out as much as we can. And that's not really a great value proposition. That's a transaction. That's not a relationship. And so we only work with taxpayers who work with an advisor in our community. We only work with taxpayers who are interested in having a year round relationship with us that are going to engage with us more than just that tax filing time. And so we do charge a little bit higher fee because there are other things that we're doing. Not that we're meeting with them on a monthly basis and going just deep dives every single time we talk. Honestly, what I've found is that most people aren't really looking to spend lots of extra hours with their CPA. They want to know they have a resource that someone has their back, that someone's looking out for them. 
So there are what can seem like incremental or pretty small things that you can do that will set you apart from every other CPA that's out there. For your listeners, if you were to just check in one extra time a year, if you were to reach out late summer, early fall and say, hey, let's review where you're at so far this year. Send me a year to date pay stub. Let's look at your P&L. Do we make an adjustment for your withholdings, your estimated payments? Even if that's all you did as your extra step, you would still set yourself apart from 90 plus percent of the industry because most of the industry is so transactionally driven. And so our goal ratio of tax preparers to tax returns is 200 returns per person. You kind of in this two to 300 range at the very most where our team members then start getting the ability to get incentive compensation for things they're doing over 200 returns because we want them to benefit from it as well. But I'm not looking to do a thousand returns myself. I'm not looking to have anybody on my team that's doing a thousand returns because you start losing out on the value and you're just turning out 1040s. Do you charge like a monthly base for the clients or you charge them on a yearly base? For everything we do, whether it's with the advisor or the in taxpayer, we look at it as an annual membership that they can pay for monthly if they'd like to. And because we're all business owners and we like cash flow, there is a slight discount if they pay annually in advance. But there's another thing that we've done to try to simplify our business model so we can focus more on serving clients. We don't bill based on chargeable hours. We actually don't do invoicing of any kind. All of our revenue comes through credit card transactions through Stripe, through memberships, whether it's monthly or annually. It just really simplifies the process. Now, to be able to do that, we've had to start really, really narrow with who we serve. We have the advisors screen people coming in to say, if they fit these certain criteria, here's what the cost is going to be for the year. And then we get really good at working with the same kinds of people over and over and over again. And eventually we might expand who we work with. But since there's so much demand and there's so many CPAs who just aren't taking on new clients, we're kind of in a position where we can be really picky about who we take on. And that way we know that everyone we take on, we're going to be able to do a great job for. That's awesome. I would say for the new CPAs that want to start their own practice, right? You grew up in a family that are financial planners, but it's not like you planned to open your firm with focus on that industry. It just came about, you had to become a partner and then, you know, oh, boom, your brother came over. He told you to join and then it happened. A lot of people have a hard time picking a niche. So what would you say to new CPA that want to start their own firms? How would they pick their niche? How would they start the process? What they should look for, I would say, from your side that you became successful in a short period of time? I have definitely a little bit different of experience than most because I was pretty much told, hey, this is what niche we want you to have. Is that something you'd be interested in? So I still had to go through and decide, is this something I want to do? But I wasn't considering between dozens of different niches. What I will say from my own experience and from watching other people do this, you have to pick something to really commit to it. And you have to understand that this is going to take time, that it might feel easier in the short run to just take anybody on as a client, but you're going to hurt yourself in the long run. And so whatever your marketing strategy is, whether podcast or social media or email marketing or some combination thereof, those are all things that we do. It's about consistency over time and understanding the different levels of the sales funnel and how you convert people through each one. As I say that, that's probably one of the pieces that needs to go in tandem with picking a niche. And something that I've had to learn a lot about over the last two years is how marketing and sales actually work, especially if you're coming from a background working in a big firm where you either weren't involved with that or you didn't see all of the mechanics and logistics behind the scenes. This isn't just, can I sweet talk my neighbor into working with me? Hopefully that's not that at all. You need to have a structure and a process just like you do for preparing a tax return. This needs to be methodical and intentional. How am I getting people to land on my website? When they land on my website, what's going to prompt them to take action? And when they take action, what's that series of events that's going to lead them to eventually becoming a client? 
Bilal, you mentioned it earlier that especially as you start a firm, and if you go from being a W-2 employee to starting a firm, it can feel pretty unnerving, especially at the beginning of where is that revenue going to come from? Where's my paycheck, quote unquote, going to come from? And so it can be a little bit scary to try to invest in other things up front, but making sure that you are learning and implementing sound systems and practices around things like marketing and sales, uh, client management, all of these kinds of things, even if that's going to cost you up front, is going to make a huge difference. I think this is like a common theme that's come up on the podcast so far. Whoever we're bringing on, we end up talking about what does your brand look like? What is the process to obtain clients? And obviously, I guess that's one of the fear factors in jumping into being a solo practitioner or starting your own firm. It's like, how am I going to get clients? And what does marketing look like? It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be putting an ad in the newspaper for your services, but like building this brand and finding your niche and just, you know, putting out there what you do and how you service your clients is marketing. And I think that kind of gets lost when people think, oh, I have to spend all this money on running SEO and this and that. And it's like, you don't necessarily need to do that aspect of marketing in order to bring on clients. You could be building your brand for free on social media, being known as the retirement tax service guy. Kelly, I'm glad you said that because a clarification I'd like to make is that a lot of this is about getting the repetitions in and having the right systems. I don't do any paid advertising. I haven't found it to be effective. I know there's people that will tout its benefits all day long. It's been a giant waste of money for me anytime I've attempted it. So this is about building that consistency. It's about getting the reps in, seeing what works and what doesn't. I think it's worth investing. When I talk about investing, I mean both time and dollars. On the dollar side, again, for me, that's not ad spend. Maybe it's somebody on social media or somebody on a podcast, somebody you think is doing a great job, reach out to them, offer to pay for an hour of their time and ask them questions about how their system works. Especially in the CPA world, we're all really trained with the idea of we bill hourly. So they're going to be really receptive to that, to say, hey, Kelly, you just started this podcast. I would love to learn how you went about that and how that all works. Could I pay for an hour of your time to learn how you and Bilal went about starting this? Those are conversations that are going to pay off tenfold for you, as opposed to just pouring a bunch of money into Facebook ads. Yeah, Facebook ads usually never works. Facebook or Google. If it works, you don't get the best clients. I tried it before. I tried the Google side when I first started. I tried the Facebook side. And I got clients that were desperate or that want to pay the lowest amount of money. So it wasn't the best. Thank God it failed for me because I went my way. But in the beginning, you just want to try things because you want money in the door. So you try different things that works for you. But in reality, the best way, the content, you do great content on LinkedIn. You provide great content and you make it interesting. You started this niche you focused on you went all in on it with your branding everything you do a good job with this and now you'd start doing seminars and i went to your seminar in vegas which you picked a nice city to visit at least how did that come about was it you and your brother that wanted to do this was it you that came up with the idea i'm sure doing the first seminar it's scary to invite people are they gonna pay are they gonna show up because you book everything ahead of time tell me a little bit about how that works and expensive it's not cheap Yeah, it is so expensive. Conferences are not a money-making endeavor. So I felt very fortunate. We launched our first in-person summit this last year. It was a day and a half in Vegas at the Virgin Hotel. We got phenomenal feedback from everybody who attended, but we learned a lot through the experience. And I feel really grateful that from a hard cost standpoint, 
we were able to cover the cost of the summit. But that strictly is what we paid the hotel, what we paid for food, what we paid for travel, those kinds of things. When I look at the amount of my team's time or my time or any of those kinds of things, it was not profitable at all. But the fact that we didn't lose money on the first year, I've been told is actually a phenomenal success. So running a summit was kind of like starting a new business all over again. There was a lot of very scary things, a lot of things that we weren't sure of. And you're exactly right. We had to commit to a contract with the hotel and pay a significant deposit and commit to contractually fulfilling the rest of that contract, regardless of how many people showed up very early in the process. And again, while we're preparing and doing tax planning, ultimately what we're trying to do is transform the way that financial advisors do tax planning. So we're trying to have a huge impact on this industry. And when we look at the other people doing this successfully, they have in-person events and people ask us for in-person events. They want to come and meet us. They want to spend time with us. And this is one of those things that made me realize early on that I wasn't a stereotypical accountant. I love those kinds of things. Hopefully it showed as I was on stage, but I'm very comfortable. I enjoy doing those kinds of things. I mean, over a day and a half, I was on stage three different times doing presentations and I love it. On LinkedIn, you'll, you'll see that I put on there that I'm the least boring CPA that you know. My wife has made me a shirt that says tax famous on it. So I lean into all these kinds of things. But it definitely was a bit scary. We realized pretty quickly that we didn't start early enough planning. We thought that six months was plenty of time. Most conferences are planned more than 12 months ahead of time. So we're already well into the planning process for next year. And it'll, it'll be in Phoenix at the end of September next year. Same time, September 25th through 27th. But we had 100 people there in the room and a little bit more than that virtually online. Because I had multiple people there who told me that they were only there because they had followed me on LinkedIn and wanted to come to the conference. And so the full price conference ticket, if you didn't sign up early or through one of our partners, was almost $1,300. So people that only knew me through LinkedIn were paying $1,300 for the conference ticket and then their flights and their hotel and everything else to come out and do this. And we've already got people signing up for it. Yeah, that was a great conference. I mean, especially being the first one, that was good. I would say a lot of financial advisors that were there. Let me tell you something, this is unique. I go to a lot of seminars in person, a lot of accountant seminars. And I realized the financial advisor seminars are different. Different people sometimes, they smoke cigars, which is cool. Accountants don't smoke cigars. Okay, we could do a whole series of podcasts on that topic. Personally, I think the accounting industry needs to drastically change, and I'm not sure how that's going to happen. Part of the reason I was willing to step away from the big firms and start my own firm was because those transitions were happening so slowly. And when you've got decades of this kind of ingrained mentality for CPAs of we make our money by grinding out as many hours as possible, it's a totally different mindset to say, okay, how can I deliver massive value to my clients? and still take lots of time off and spend time with my family and do these other things because you're exactly right. That's a big theme, especially for the advisors we work with because that coaching program that my brother runs, that's one of their core tenants is to deliver massive value and to take a ton of time off. And those things aren't mutually exclusive, but that's a little bit harder if you've only ever had a CPA background to wrap your head around of, wait, how could I possibly be serving my clients unless my butt is in the chair and I'm charging hours? As accountants talk to me about things that I'm doing different or things that they maybe should consider doing different, I would strongly encourage everyone listening to look at how you level up the value you provide to individual clients as opposed to strictly trying to find new clients. Looking at things like retainer models or ongoing subscription models where you can provide services at specific times and be really structured about your calendar of when you're doing these things. Because you don't want it to turn into, I now work 60 hours a week year round because I've been there before. It's awful. How do we level up the value so that we can charge a premium fee for the premium value that we're providing? And so that we're not anchored on, well, what does H&R Block charge? 
Or what is the local firm that does a thousand returns per tax preparer chart? The biggest factor I saw is that in the financial planning community, they most agree on the price they want to charge. It's like the standard 1% rule, right? A lot of them will go up and down. But accountants, it's a huge range, especially on individual tax return. You have a hundred bucks a return to, you know, $5,000 a return. You know, it depends on complexity, but it goes very cheap to hundred bucks a return. And it might take a few hours, but I think financial planners value their time and they price it based on that. Most of them, I would say, but I say they have this standard rule of 1% rule that they follow. But as accountants, we don't have any rules we follow. We just go gut feeling pricing, you know, hundred bucks, 500 bucks, thousand bucks, whatever the gut feeling might see in the moment. Yeah. So how I would encourage people to think about this, because you're absolutely right. That's the reality we're dealing with right now. And so it's really easy to get hung up on what are other people charging or to try to tie it back to an hourly rate, because that's how we were all brought up is that my time is worth X amount an hour. And so if I'm working great, this is what I'm going to charge people. And so the mindset shift is away from starting with price and starting with value. And so this is where you want to look at what else am I going to do besides prep the tax return? And you want to look for things that you can do at scale that you can batch and do for lots of clients at the same time. And that when you're talking to a prospect or you're leveling up the fee that you're charging to an existing client, you don't say things like, hey, we're going to charge you more because of inflation. Nobody wants to hear that. You lead with here are things that we are going to do that no one else is doing or that most of the industry is not doing or that you're not going to find easily other places. And so you highlight those other check-ins during the year. If you're not familiar with it, I look into form 8821, which allows you to do monitoring with the IRS. For CPAs actively doing tax prep, it's not hard to set up and clients find it incredibly valuable that you are monitoring things on their behalf from the IRS. And so you want to start looking for these things. To be honest, there's a lot of people listening that probably are already doing other things, but aren't communicating to their clients that they are doing those things and they should be charging for those things. Correct. Again, talking about value versus hourly, it's so important. And I think it's really difficult for accountants to communicate the value. Even in my own practice, I've grown my practice so much in the last two and a half years, and it's amazing. But I still feel like I need to be able to portray the value that I provide to clients better to be able to bill higher and bill appropriately and just outline, hey, this is what makes me different. So think about your regular old run-of-the-mill accounting firm and think about the different things that you're providing to these clients and verbatim. This is what I do differently. This is the value that you're going to get. It's as easy as that. Fool around with chat GPT. <laughs> Develop it a little bit and personalize it to what you need. But I think that's a great piece of advice to end with today. Thank you so much, Stephen, for appearing on the podcast. I think we'll definitely have to have you back in the future. And can you just tell us a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, so I actually have two podcasts. One is Advisor Facing. It's called the Retirement Tax Services Podcast. And then the other one is Taxpayer Facing. And we're in the process of rebranding it to the least boring tax podcast. It's currently called the Retirement Tax Podcast. I know they're very similar. That's why we're going to rebrand it. And follow me on LinkedIn. Just look for Stephen Jarvis. I'm very active there. Between the two podcasts, my whole focus with everybody I work with is that you need to pay every dollar of tax that you owe, but there's no patriotic awards for tipping the IRS. And so it's consistently doing the small things over time that allow us to minimize our lifetime tax bill. Thanks again, everybody, for listening and stay tuned. Before we sign off, remember to share this episode with fellow accounting professionals. Building the firm of your dreams is a journey best taken together. And by sharing, you're helping others on their path to success. 